Welcome to the Omni Gamers Club podcast, the podcast for games of all platforms. I'm Daniel Winter. And this is Mark Uesso. Hi, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Excellent. Good to hear. We were able to meet up in person again a couple of days ago. We get some action in it. A, our local board game. It's not so much a cafe. It's a, a pizza restaurant. A p- pizzeria Ludica. Uh, so we'll talk about more on that later. We've got our feature on Caverna coming up. But first, we're discussing about... Sorry, we are discussing what's new to us and what else we what else we've been playing yeah so what's what's news to you not a lot is new uh, other than the fact that there's been a product that's pre-releases are out uh so the device isn't out i don't believe but it's a it's a portable gaming machine uh, it's a mm. pc from one of the well-known pc component makers asus or asus asus yeah asus <laughs> however you want to pronounce that so the device is called the Asus ROG Ally, which mouthful. it is a super mouthful and good luck pronouncing that. Uh, Ally, the tagline is play all of your games, all your games. I think it is because that spells Ally. Because unlike, I think it's trying to differentiate itself from the Steam Deck, which I am a proud owner of in the fact that you don't need Steam. You can run Steam, but it's basically more you know open it's a, a Windows install, right? It is a Windows install, mm-hmm. yeah. So you install, you know, Epic or GOG or... Yeah, every, everything will run natively on it rather than trying to backend like on the Steam Deck. Yeah, of course, you're not going to have a nice console-like uh, UI experience mm. that's dedicated. So, you know, that's the sort of the trade-off. Now, I haven't had hands-on to this machine, but it is essentially two generations or two years like newer hardware than the Steam Deck. So no doubt it's more powerful in, in lots of different ways. It does have pretty much everything you'd expect. It has, has a higher resolution. It's got some fancy LED colored lights <laughs> and two, you know, uh, analog sticks, of course. Uh, unlike the Steam Deck, they are um, uh, Xbox style, so they're uneven. Uh, un- and what it doesn't have from the Steam Deck is the touch panels, which are actually kind of nice, depending on how you configure them, depending on what type of game you play. Yeah, not only suitable for some games, I imagine. Yeah, certainly. I did, I did like the touchpad on the on the PlayStation Four. I think it was it's like for navigating maps and things. That was quite nice. Yeah, it's a lot like that. It's nice to like flick away on your thumb. I think it's intended to use in more like mouse oriented games, like real time strategy games, if you want to brave that mm. on a portable <laughs> machine. So I'm not going to uh, voice any opinions about the Ally. I was very tempted to buy it, but it ended up being close to, I don't know, a thousand bucks Canadian with the yeah, tech all included. I, I was briefly looking at that before I got my, my new computer recently and saw the price. It's like even more expensive than the Steam Deck. So I bulked at that <laughs> yeah actually it makes the steam deck look pretty reasonable in comparison. exactly yeah so i'm not sure what market there is i've heard some good buzz but if you've got the disposable cash or the, or the tax refund as it were maybe it's up your alley yeah actually a thousand dollars all in is not especially canadian is not a bad price for a dedicated gaming machine and of course like the steam deck you can connect this to a monitor keyboard and mouse so you can have it old school way too if you want so i don't think it's going to be a bad bad value uh but i just don't have the cash at the at hand so 
when I decide no, to upgrade, no. that's when the real decision comes in. Uh-huh. So yeah, that, I thought that was exciting. And if anyone gets that device, let us know how you're enjoying it. Yep, absolutely. Curious to hear some experienced uh, takes on 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 that product. And on the console side of things, we we talk here a lot about Xbox Game Pass. And we've covered many games on that service, but not, not out of any sense of superiority for Xbox, just those are the consoles we both have. I, I do have a PlayStation 4, as I, I, I just mentioned. It's getting on now, unfortunately, showing its age. Uh, and so I've just sort of grown distance from that platform. But was excited to see this last week we had the Sony Showcase, a sort of big new press conference i guess it was in, in lieu of e3 this year right it's, it's the playstation direct is what it is right yes yeah <laughs> I, I, there's so many different names uh for all of these they spread across the year now but so i just thought we could discuss what our sort of, if, if anything particularly stood out as exciting from that show yeah for sure i took a quick look at the showcase as well not the whole hour and a half of it but uh i definitely uh, saw some highlights there uh do you want to start us off Sure. First of all was Talos Principle 2. I, I don't know if that's the exact name, but a, a sequel to the Talos Principle, which was a, a sort of a puzzle game by the makers of Serious Sam, I think it is. And it's a first-person puzzle game, a little similar to like Witness, but playing with sort of portals, I guess, yeah, more, more similar to the portal, I think, actually, uh, but very philosophically minded. Like you're playing as a robot and a lot of uh, existential questions and things delivered in between solving these puzzles. And I, I quite enjoyed the first one. I don't know exactly what this is adding, but it's more Talos Principle. Right. Yeah. I own that game, the original on, I think multiple platforms. And I, I'm sad to say I haven't tried it out yet, but uh, I think along the lines of um, a portal or a first person puzzle game, uh, I love those when I'm in the mood, but uh, it takes me a bit <laughs> to get into the mood. Yes, yeah, and so you have to have to be have the patience to not just get frustrated and look up for the answer, as I, I I believe I probably did many times in that first game. There's a reason why I haven't ever finished uh, the classic game Mist. Uh, I don't want to bash my head against obtuse puzzles too much. <laughs> well, uh, as, after that, we had Alan Wake Two, which has been a long time coming. Obviously, we we. Last year, I think it was, discussed the, the remaster of the first game, and it's, it's long been a favorite of mine. Uh, so very excited for that to finally come out. Definitely has, looks to have a different tone, more of a much, a much darker tone, some sort of folk horror elements in there. You're playing as an FBI officer, for, not just Alan. Uh, so seeing some different perspectives, also, but also a lot more twisted, now, like leaning into the sort of nightmare uh, realities in that game. Right. Well, if anyone has played uh, Control IGN's Game of the Year, I believe, you, you might be aware that that's part of the Alan Wake-averse. Yes. So now this is the continuation of the um, extended Alan Wake-averse. So the AWU, here comes another entry. <laughs> yes, I did I did play that game. I, there was some DLC that was that, that directly connect, made that connection. So I need to double back and play that. I went back to play Alan Wake a little while ago. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, Control, I loved even more. Uh, really tight action there. So uh, yeah, Alan Wake 2 ought to be a real great, you know, atmospheric psychological horror return to the mm-hmm. series, but hopefully with the tighter action-y controls of yes. Uh, Control. Yes, with uh, more modern controls. Yeah, very excited for that. 
Absolutely. Maybe I'll mention a couple. My my options were a little bit less on the hardcore side. <laughs> yeah, I also own a PlayStation 4, but not a 5. So I'm a, a lapsed Sony gamer. Uh, but I, I will talk about one I've been playing later. Anyways, I thought it was really interesting. I saw a sneak capture of a game called Foam Stars, which looks suspiciously like a Splatoon, I don't know, inspired yeah, but playing with like soap, like game? water guns and soap and things, like I think it was. Right. Well, I, I can't emphasize how much of a phenomenon Splatoon is, at least in Japan and <laughs> perhaps other parts of Asia. Like you see Splatoon ads in the trains as the trains are, are going down the tracks. Wow. Uh, so, uh, and, and, you know, billboards and, and this and that and, and other sorts of merch. So it's like a absolute phenomenon a national phenomenon and i don't know how much of the you know military style shooters they play over there they're not nearly as popular as splatoon so perhaps they're feeling a little bit pressure sony to keep up with their game console competitor uh nintendo in their home country so it it makes sense that that's there and then there was a another entry in the Cat Quest series. This must be the third one by now. Yeah, that name rings a bell, but I've not really played any of those. Yeah, another game series that I own entries in and I haven't <laughs> played. But uh, they look super cute. They're like uh, basically traditional RPGs or JRPG style games, but with a, a cutesy little cat cartoon cat as the main character. And this one is no different. Its subtitle is Pirates of the Caribbean. So, you know, <laughs> oh, if no. you can get away from <laughs> puking up your guts there <laughs> from, from the sugary sweet uh, tone of it, it, it looks absolutely delightful. So, uh, I'm Which does remind me there was another game. That. It was like something Squire. It had, oh, yeah. Yeah, that had like, it was a 2D sort of picture book. You're, you're playing a character moving through a picture book, but then he can pop out and move around in the 3D space as well. Uh, that looked really adorable. Uh, similar to Link Link Between Worlds, the way that uh, Link could like go into 2D surfaces and pop in and out, and really playing with that sort of um, those two f- types of, of perspective. That looked really cool. I can't remember, it's the, the, the Loyal Squire or something, I think it's called. For sure, Squire is definitely in the name. <laughs> so uh, with that, looking to the future, why don't we talk about what we've been playing right now? Yeah, for sure. I guess I'll start us off. I'll continue. Um, I mentioned I was playing something on the PS4. So I picked up another game from the local library. It was a game that was really on the back burner for me. Um, looked really interesting. I didn't really know anything about it. It's called Sakuna of Rice and Ruin. And like a game I mentioned last episode, it's a side-scrolling action RPG. I I guess you could call it an RPG. So it's a side-scrolling hack and slash, but there is a farming game built into it. Basically, you're this like Japanese, a minor Japanese deity, and you sort of get cast out of uh, heaven and you're forced to uh, assist this family of starving peasants essentially Uh, and you get um, I don't know deported to this demon island and of course for some reason you have to help not only fight off the monsters that are threatening this this family uh, you also have to help them grow a rice crop and Mm. even even right down to like planting the seeds in the paddy and pulling out the weeds and it's this really interesting blend of 2d side scrolling three-dimensional traversal and there's even this 
uh, you know, painterly overworld map. There's some slight Metroidvania aspects as well as you unlock new abilities. You can access different areas. And it's really, really clever, and it's absolutely beautiful to look at. The, the art direction is fantastic. I know that your um, your wife is a as an animator illustrator, and I was reminded of uh, some of the pieces that you know you have up on on your walls as inspiration. You might want to check that out, or at least show uh, her some of the. Yeah, the I'm looking at some screenshots now, uh, so it looks very nice. Like the 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 cover at least looks very sort of watercolor uh sort of painterly uh styles that it, it looks very nice I, how much how much focus is the farming in that game it seems to, i mean it's just getting started like i definitely i played it for about two or three sessions and you know i planted the field field uh with seeds and it gave me like a it gave me like a grade it's like uh, they're too <laughs> too far apart uh and it's really really insane because apparently if you get if you become a better farmer, if your crop yields are better, it makes you better at fighting for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like it unlocks new melee abilities. And it'll even give you like a very detailed, like six point breakdown of how your grains are developing. Oh, wow. From like <laughs> as- really, really detailed breakdown. So it's like a quirky as heck game, but really quite playable. And I don't know, right up my alley of bizarre Japanese action RPG strategy game with cute yeah, yeah, art. Cause I, I recently discussed Harvestella that had an interesting mix of, of farming sim mixed with RPG. And I don't think that quite nailed it, but it did show how good that structure, the farming structure of, of the loop of coming back to, coming back to your base, doing a little bit of farming before going out to adventure again. I found that that loop really compelling. And so I'm, I'm curious to see how other games pull that off. Yeah, this game is really interesting. I think it's a few years old now, so it, it really beat the curve of the latest, I don't know, a tsunami wave of farm keeping uh, games, um, you know, right along there with, uh, what is it called? Rune Factory, that long established series. Um, it's a pretty cool choice. And I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's also on Switch as well. So Sakuna of Rice and Ruin, I recommend it. Excellent. Well, uh, I have been watching Cult of the Lamb since it came out last year and, and been eagerly wanting to try it and seeing all of these updates constantly come out. It's been well supported over the over the months and finally took the plunge with the, the new there's a new cooking update basically. Uh, so I took the plunge and I've been playing that Cult of the Lamb. It is a roguelike pretty typical in the sense that you, you are making a run uh, very much in the in this in the vein of binding of isaac your each run is a series of rooms like series of, of square rooms almost like a, a zelda dungeon that you're navigating these rooms there's monsters in each one uh you'll get some some items that will tweak your attacks or give you some sort of passive upgrades as, as tarot cards just like in binding of isaac each level is pretty simple, at least at the start of the game. Like it's a pretty linear path through these. There's not much exploration or variety going through these maps. Uh, the upgrades aren't particularly exciting yet. I'm j- just now several hours in. Things are starting to, to tweak a little bit. So there, there is definitely is more, but it takes a while to sort of show its its depth there. The real twist here being that in between these runs, you are you have a, a little base uh, or a the cult basically a cult headquarters where you're recruiting followers and building up your base with 
uh, like furnishings and, and dwellings and basically farming your harvesters so, so your followers for faith and you, you're taking their faith and p- pumping that into upgrades uh, and so and that 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 does give a, a really cool loop of both sides basically feeding into each other. So the you, you have your followers, you collect their faith, you feed that into upgrades that changes your options in the roguelike runs. And in, in those runs, you collect resources and new followers that you can bring back to your base. So they, they really reinforce each other in this really fun way. I don't love the whole cult aesthetic. I mean, the, the aesthetic, the actual graphics of the game are, are lovely. It's real... Some of the don't starve the the sort of isometric view with these little two D maquettes, uh, but really lovely uh, illustrations and some of the the UI sort of treatments is quite striking with the limited colours. But the more the the themes around the whole cults ends. This isn't Animal Crossing. The game, like you, even if you want to be attached to your followers. The game is telling you basically that you are abusing them and manipulating them, and you can you can choose to basically murder them and use their basically feed them to the to the rest of your followers, and you don't have to do that. But the game's kind of the, the subtext is is constantly there and telling you that that you're better off just manipulating them. So I don't I don't love that playing into the, the real damage that the cults actually do. Uh, not so much the, the whole religious sort of not, the sort of satire behind that. I don't mind that so much. Pining of Isaac, very, obviously very much leaned into that. But uh, yeah, the, I, I'm really enjoying the game. It, it does take a little while to show its strengths, uh, but enjoying it as it is right now. That's Cult of the Lamb. I'm a little ashamed to say it, but I'll say it a third time. That game is also a game I own <laughs> that I have not really given a proper shake. I Damn played, those Steam sales. <laughs> yeah, I played about 15 minutes of that game, so I, I really should give it another shot. I agree, it looks absolutely adorable, but you do feel a little bit queasy, a little bit uneasy abusing your flock of followers. Flock, um, pun intended. <laughs> So certainly uh, it's worth taking a look at and maybe we'll even cover in a future episode. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. I'll mention another video game quickly before we move on to the cardboard titles. One thing you'll know about me, if you've been listening carefully is that I think I like MMOs, but I really don't. So (laughs) I've been looking for a, a fun, low key MMO to play and uh, I, I basically just kind of dug into my back Steam catalog and I pulled out this old series, because I like retro games, of uh, PlayStation era um, virtual MMOs. So virtual MMOs were a little genre, subgenre that was out there for a while. And one of them is called Dot Hack. And Dot Hack has something like five entries or or something into it. Yeah. Is, it, is there an anime I think it's based on? Uh, yeah, I think it was I think it was a game first and they made it into an anime. Okay. But I could be wrong. It sometimes it goes the other way. <laughs> but this edition is called Dot Hack GU, which the letter's GU, but G, GU actually is a word also means something in Japanese. It means freedom or free. So, I think it's a bit of a pun there. So Dot Hack GU is actually a compilation and it I think it, it compiles like four or five of the entries in that series. 
So I'm just playing through the first one and it's, you know, it sets up the series uh, fairly well. It's definitely old school graphics, but it actually runs pretty well. And the story is a little, you know, it has some mystique to it. It has some cheesiness as well, but, you know, it has some sort of dark turns and, you know, I love these sort of bizarre, quirky Japanese games. So uh, it's it's hitting the right tones for me right now. It's entertaining. It's it's kind of like watching an animated series. <laughs> like uh, there was a series I used to watch called like Serial Experiments Lane. I don't know if you ever watched that one no. back in the nineties, but it's it's a it's a product of its time. It's sort of this thing where like the internet is taking over people's brains, sort of thing. <laughs> it's that early days of the internet paranoia. And I think another uh, virtual uh, RPG that I've also played that uh, is a little bit more popular nowadays is called Sword Art Online. Yes, yeah, I've been following both of those. I, I've certainly had them on my on my wish list for quite some time. I do love the theme, like MMOs as a theme, as opposed right. to a a, a, right. a a medium. Uh, another one, I, sort of indie game I played uh, a couple of years ago is Crosscode. Okay. Uh, in a similar vein that I quite enjoyed. Uh, so, yeah, so how, how does it treat the 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 MMO ness of it? <laughs> Actually, Dot Hack GU is very cool in the way that it has a virtual desktop computer mm, built into okay. it, so you can log into the game and you can log out of the game. But of course, I'm talking about a game within a game. <laughs> so when you're not in the game, you're just looking at your desktop computer and it has this bizarro, bizarro land 90s interface, but it, like there's a virtual internet, there's a virtual in, uh, email account, there's a virtual photo gallery, like your, your desktop computer has apps as you would think it would, but they all work. <laughs> they all work with this internal logic. You can click links to start uh, like YouTube videos, essentially tiny postage stamp size videos from within a, a, a website, quote unquote, from this virtual web browser. So it, I'm just like having lived in that time with this archaic internet, it just like gives me chills because I like, I feel like I'm in a virtual, virtual world, <laughs> not just the world that they're in, but also, you know, traveling back to this nascent internet that never really existed but it's this fantasy of an internet that could have been yeah so it's really leaning into the nostalgia of what it was to play an mmo not just the game itself yeah it's it's about like internet culture right it's about early internet culture and more of a fantasy a kind of a cyberpunk fantasy of what could be you know what you know cyberspace could offer so Maybe a little waxing a little bit philosophical there, but <laughs> it's it's a very cool glimpse into you know a, an era gone by, another kind of retro game. Excellent, yeah. I I, mean, I doubt I'll have the time to check it out, but I have been wanting to for quite some time. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you can get it for real cheap. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, let's jump to the board game side of things. Uh, you and I, as I previously mentioned met up in person so there's quite a bit of overlap this episode uh but i have been playing a little bit of unmatched so this is a game that's been out for a few years now i can't remember when the original set came out so it is originally based on a much older game that is star wars duel i want to say from i think it was around the phantom menace era uh but restoration as they as they want to do took took it and and rebooted it with a 
range of different characters and most recently have have released a whole bunch of marvel characters to go with it so i i've um i I will say i i received this as a review copy of all these marvel sets the one that most of most interest to me was teen spirit and that is ms marvel squirrel girl and cloak and dagger uh i'll say like ms marvel is what is one of my favorite Marvel characters, so <laughs> little bias, but that, that, that's why I, I, I chose this one specifically. So we played a round of this. I've played a couple of other games since, uh, and yeah, I match. So it, it's basically two, two player dueling game. You can, you can play with more players, but primarily you'll be playing as a, as a two player duel. Uh, you have these really lovely little um, miniatures. They, they all have the, they, they're all really unique sculpts with a, sort of a wash on them. So they're really nicely, nice, nice production on, on all, on all sides. And you have a deck of cards that you're using to basically duel each other in various ways. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, you've got attack cards with action cards and you can move around the board, but what's really key is how they use it in, in, within a deck of cards. They can really, zero in on the identity of this character, how, how the character can express itself through just a deck of cards. Uh, so Squirrel Girl that you, you were playing was had a whole bunch of squirrels that she could spawn around the board and basically manipulate the squirrels and Zerg rush them, <laughs> as I believe you did at one point. Ms. Marvel is sort of can play with range, like she can reach out and, and has um, manipulate outside of her her figure a lot, a lot a lot easier cloak and dagger because they're actually two different figures they can sort of switch spaces and, and sort of faint and and teleport back and forth in some really clever ways what, what did you think of unmatched i've heard of unmatched but uh i think i might have played it once before but this was really my most recent and most in-depth opportunity to play the system so it was really cool to see those characters you know i'm familiar with those characters from the the marvel shows and the marvel comics i like the simplicity of the system Mm -hmm. you know everything you taught to me you know you gave me like what like a five minute breakdown yeah it's pretty straightforward you get in and out yeah pretty easy to, to introduce Right. And the rest of the rules are down on the cards and they're, they're pretty easy to follow for the most part. So yeah, I thought it was going to be a little bit, a little bit dry being, you know, a, you know, such a kind of a stark, starkly designed game with those Mm -hmm. little like node points on the map and the little lines connecting them, you know, pretty clever for its simplicity. And then the, the simultaneous card resolution. So no dice or no real chance other than, you know, basically just reading your opponent's mind. And I thought that in the end, that was a pretty effective system. And it's really like really all you need to make a, a light, lightly strategic, you know, slightly tactical skirmish game work. So, so I liked it. You know, I liked how I got to control a little <laughs> army, uh, and you got to likewise control multiple characters with different uh, abilities. So I, I could definitely see the potential there. Um, I don't think me personally, I'm going to go deep into this game, but definitely if it was suggested to me, I would pick it up and do, you know, just a, a little quick, quick uh, match. Like how long did our game take? Not, not long uh, at all. Right? Fifteen minutes or so. It, it, it is very short and sweet. And I mean, with that is obviously going to come a bit of luck. Uh, there is going to be luck of the draw. Sometimes you just don't have the cards you want, and but it, it's short enough that you don't really fe- like 
it's not a huge investment if the if the cards just don't go your way. I, I don't know how how much it, how fair the experience we had was with playing playing new characters. Is absolutely a degree of discoverability. And it's, it's fun to be having that yourself. You don't know what these characters are capable of. You don't know what your opponent's capable of, most importantly. Uh, so you, it's very easy to walk into traps and just make do misplays that you would not, have, would not do if you knew what cards your opponent has. So there's definitely a whole other layer of this game. Once you know what cards they have and like trying to, to bait and switch and, and the, more of that mind game would definitely come into play with uh, re- repeat plays. So I, I think it definitely is a game that would reward play multiple times with, with with the same characters, really mastering those characters. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the game ended, I felt, pretty abruptly, but I didn't feel <laughs> feel too badly about that because it, it. you're right, it didn't overstay its welcome. And that swinginess, you know, felt just about right for a game of that length. I like crunchier card-based games, like, you know, with those combo-tastic games, like Res Arcana, or even within the Marvel Universe, there's that Marvel, what is it? Champions, Champions? yeah, um, which is quite actually fiddly, even though it doesn't have mm-hmm. any spatial component. Just the kind of the flipping and then the rotating and then the the kind of states and the building things up. It's actually quite a bit more complex and fiddly than a game system like what is it called? Uncharted, <laughs> um, unmatched, <laughs> unmatched, exactly. Uh, so I think it's just about right. Yeah, if you like a, a bit of light skirmish, then yeah, try out the system. It's it's really quite clever. And if you're not into Marvel, there's a whole range of characters from like Victorian sort of co- Cobbledon Fog, as it's called, as a set with like Dracula and and uh, Doctor, not Doctor Frankenstein, <laughs> the other one, um, Doctor Jekyll. Yes, Doctor Jekyll Hyde. And, and Mister Hyde. Yeah, uh, that, that's a fun set. You got some Jurassic Park characters. I played it with a friend with um, Mold. Mul- I, I was Muldoon, and he was playing against a, a gang of raptors. And that was a very fun match, Glad especially when you get to quote the game shooter. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's, there's so many clever little nods in this game, little thematic touches uh, that they never fails to uh, be a lot of fun. So, yeah, that's unmatched. Okay, I'll mention the other game that we played that same session at Ludica. We also played a game that I uh, brought back, I teased last episode, I brought back from Japan. It's called Yuda Yuda Penguin. And uh, it's by an indie designer. Um, I'll try and pull up the name right now. It's essentially, I think we ended up calling it Dexterity Uno. It's got, it's absolutely adorable. The components are really charming. It's got these four penguin meeples. I think there's some versions that even have polar bears and things like that. There's a new Korean version that's about to come out that has a whole bunch more meeples. And I will say that the designer is Yabuchi Ryoko. Okay. I think Ryoko is a, is a woman's name, but yeah, typically. But uh, no, that's great. Yeah, it's an a indie game, but uh, I got it at a fairly big retail store in Japan. And it's really quite unassuming, but it has this cutesy graph, um, simplistic 2D illustrated graphics, but everything's adorable. It comes with this little comic book uh, in Japanese, <laughs> of course, uh, and the cards and even the box has these like little flecks of like holographic yeah, printing in them. Very shiny hol- holographic cards. Every, every 
component was was pretty it was, it was like it's very thin cardstock uh and it feels sort of flimsy but it's all nicely produced like nice um the, the the graphic aesthetics are really nice in the game even for a very small compact light game right and even if the cardstock is really thin the cards themselves are circular so that carries some sort of like tac- uh, tactile attractiveness to them and it also comes with these kind of chunky thick uh crystal glass um, plastic beads acrylic beads uh kind of like in ink and gold but you know five times the size so (laughs) those are fun to play with and essentially uh what you're doing is you're you're taking turns stacking cards uh, upon a tower and depending on the card that you played previously the next person has to either put a card down of the matching suit so like blue light blue white or gray or something like that Uh, actually i think the white cards you have to put down these what are they they're sort of like uh, mountains the icebergs the iceberg component and they're sort of three-dimensional so if you hold on the layer to the tower exactly so if you can kind of imagine the component that that that's in rhino hero the one that stacks things vertically it's sort of like that it's like a bent and twisted card that you set upon the existing cards. And basically you're, I think you're supposed to like liberally just flop these cards on, and then you might have to put a few gemstones on the cards. And of course players can put them whichever side that they want to. You might also have to put a penguin down. So as you go on, the tower is supposed to get more and more precarious and more and more wobbly. But uh, what did you think about the, the gameplay? Yeah, we never had any trouble with with the wobbliness of it. It, it. The tower never fell. Nothing, nothing ever fell off in our one play of this. So I don't know how challenging the dexterity element is. Maybe it's just because it's a new game and the, the 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 components will get a bit more flimsy with time and more unpredictable. But uh, it, it was quite fun. It was very very simple mechanics. Obviously, easy easy to to learn. Very basically. Uno, but with dexterity challenges, and I did like how you're dictating what the next player has to do. So it's a bit of a challenge element to it. Like you, I, you're challenging your opponent to okay, you have to put down two crystals, or you have to put a penguin on there. So you have a little bit of agency as to what what you're forcing the next person to do. So that that was, that was good fun. So a little little bit of, of interaction there, but overall very very simple game. But dexterity is like it's. All in the fun of, of the of the tactility of it, basically, and then this was a very striking game. Uh, lovely components uh, was 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 good fun. Yeah, great trope, table presence, and I think someone on Discord was saying that there's even a mini version yes. <laughs> that you can get as well, which I would actually recommend compared to the large version because maybe having to deal with tinier cards and tinier components <laughs> would make the dexterity aspect yeah, exactly yeah. that much more challenging. So I would recommend that if you can find it. Excellent. Yeah, so that was a fun uh, few games. And definitely the, the, the main beast was the main title we're going to be covering today. Yes, so let's take a break and we'll be back to talk about Caverna. Very good. The main game we covered that day at Ludica was a title called Caverna. It's from... 2013 so and 10 it's years by, old now. <laughs> yeah exactly and it's by designer uve rosenberg uh, it's uh published by lookout games and the artists you, you would likely recognize from 
Ubi's other games are Clemens Franz and Javier Gonzalez Cava. Right. And uh, what kind of game is this? It's essentially a worker placement game. Maybe familiar with some of the other worker placement games that uh, Mr. Rosenberg has designed before. What did you call this game? Uh, Flippantly. (laughs) It's it's very much Agricola 2.0 and very much not shame. It's very shameless about that. Not, Not shameless? Shameless. No shame. There is no shame. <laughs> you know, to address the, the the elephant in the room, the the, the cow in the cave, uh, it, it's it's quite explicitly re- revisiting the themes of Agricola. It's qu- quite a lot of changes to that. It's, it's going to be hard to talk about this game without addressing Agricola, but I do want to try and talk about it on its own terms at the same time. <laughs> sure. And from a historical background, I'm coming as someone who I wouldn't say I'm a Agricola master, but I've played probably, you know, somewhere in the realm of two, three, four hundred games of Agricola, wow. mo- mostly digitally, because it was one of the, I forget what it was, what platform it was, but it was one of the earlier games on, I think, Voyageur. And just on a whim, it was one of the few games you could play solo on that platform. Oh, okay. So I just played game after game after game after game of this game in solo because there's no wait time. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the platform just shuffled everything for you, took care of everything, but I could play turn after turn after turn. And I r- highly recommend that as a quick way to learn all the variety of cards in that game because that game is very card dependent. Uh, at the beginning of the game, that's going to determine how your game's going to roll out. So I played a lot of that game and I had had not played a lot of Caverna until just recently. Probably my first honest try at this game was, you know, within the last month. Yeah, I, I've had bad experiences, I should say, with both Agricola and Caverna in the past when I was relatively new to the hobby and had sort of avoided them as just not for me. For, for many years and it's only in the last couple of years that i've revisited agricola and sort of learned to find the love there and decided well maybe i should give caverna another shot as well so yeah i've, I've been playing quite a lot lately not to spoil my my thoughts on it but i i've definitely found come to appreciate it more than i had in the past so you mentioned this is a worker placement game. You start out with a, a family of dwarves. That is, you start out with two dwarves each, and you'll be placing them on, onto a variety of, of spaces to collect resources, to build up your farm slash cave and feed your family and grow some crops and, and have some animals and dig some caves as, as dwarves want to do. So, if you've seen Agricola, you, it's basically this, you, your space. You ha- each player has a grid of of a, of, of the square a square grid that you're going to be placing your farm onto. And Caverna basically doubles that. You now have a grid of your farm and a grid of your cave that you're collectively adding these tiles to and, and expanding your capabilities like that. And those will expand over the course of the game as each round new new options will come out and. Yeah, new, new options will come out each round, and you'll be expanding your cave and potentially having new little dwarves at some point. <laughs> right, and I would, um, you know, so, some would call it uh, Agricola 2.0, and I, I agree like that the, the, the <laughs> DNA is definitely there. I would say 
more generously that say about 50-60% of the DNA is shared between Caverna and its older ancestor. So at that point, to me, what was the hardest to get accustomed to Caverna was it was sort of my, I had to unlearn, right? I had mm-hmm. to unlearn habits from the old <laughs> system. Although I guess you could argue that I had the benefit of knowing some of that initial DNA. So you're absolutely right. M- the majority of what you said is the same between Agricola and Caverna, except that you're, you're digging these caverns and some of these dwarves you can arm with weapons. And I think the weapons were really the, the real difference and the hardest thing it, it for me to learn how this game differs in a, in a, in a great way. Basically in Agricola, if you can learn to feed yourself, like that's the game. Yes. And yeah. there's, there's M- two misery farmers has come to be known. Yeah. Or <laughs> subsistence, I think is the, is the, <laughs> is the technical term, but there's basically two main, two, potentially three main ways to feed yourself in that game. The, the original Agricola is basically animal husbandry or farming or baking bread. Um, so baking bread slash farming kind of similar strategies. So they sort of overlap and most successful farms in Agricola will do one of those three strategies. It's almost a joke at this point, how much of a dominant strategy making more babies in that game is (laughs) basically you have to do it. Mm -hmm. You will not be happy with yourself if you have two farmers at at the end of the game and you're all your your opponents have four and five farmers. So to, to, to be clear, in both games, have, uh, growing your family, having babies will give you an extra worker each round. So there's more actions each round, uh, but you do have to feed them. So the number, it, 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 if both games have basically harvest phases where you, you will, will grow the, the various things on your farm, but will also have to feed your family based on how many members of your family that you have. When you feed is a little bit different in Caverna, it's actually variable. Mm. As in Agricola, you know, on a schedule, it's laid out for you on the map. Very, very three clearly. rounds and then there'll be a harvest. Yeah. Right. With no variation, this is when the harvests are going to be. And this is when you, you know, you feed or you die. You feed or you starve and then you beg. In Caverna, you also have some fixed harvests. And then you have some periods where you don't know if there's going to be a harvest or not. And then you have, what are they called? Like these half harvests? Yeah. So there's these sort of event tokens that are flipped over each turn. And that will either be a full harvest or go to this basically event card and the first time of which there's no harvest and then there's sort of tweaked versions of harvests that that will change what's required each round so yeah certainly a little more unpredictability in in needing to prepare although i never found it particularly hard to keep your family fed i will say so it's just more that you have to know at the end of this round do i need to have food to feed my family or can i focus on other things Right. I think you do have to feed your family just as often, ultimately, maybe, you know, 80% as much, uh, potentially. And not knowing exactly when a harvest is coming is going to keep you on your toes. So kudos to that change. But I think that really the biggest mercy that this game has introduced is that you can really convert more things into food. 
Yeah, it was really a multi-stage process in Agricola, having to to build an oven, then take a like, bake, baking bread was a specific action that you had to go and do. Whereas here, any resource can be converted into food at any time. So if you, it's, it's a lot more streamlined. If you if you have animals, if you have wheat, you can turn it into food instantly. Yeah, it's a kind of a it's a philosophical change. It's it's um it's it's less punitive than its older cousin. So that, you know, that they didn't actually have to change much. It, it, you're right. It's a streamlining. And I think that's the biggest change that makes it a kinder, gentler sort of game. It really lets you focus on other things like expanding your farming setup or expanding your caverns and your, and your mining setup or going on expeditions. So I think there's a little bit more freedom in how to how to basically run a successful game of Caverna. You don't have to do it just one of these two or three ways. Yeah, well, you have twice as many spaces that you need to fill by the end of the game, basically. Because as, as with Agricola, you, you you lose points at the end of the game for any empty spaces. Now you have twice as many to fill. You've got your cave and your farm, uh, both of which are being utilized for different things. So the cave, which I guess we haven't really discussed, is you can, ha- you can build mines there that will help you generate ore. And you can build furnishings furnishings yes so these are the 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 quintessential sort of unique abilities in this game uh mark you mentioned earlier that agricola has this hand of cards each player will have has a hand of cards with sort of unique abilities that you can play as professions at the start of a game or sorry throughout the game you draft at the start of the game you can play them throughout the game right occupations yeah Yes, yeah. Uh, whereas Caverna has these rooms that you can buy from a central pool. So there's, like, there's I think, literally 50 of these in the center of the board that anyone can buy at any time during the game, assuming you have an empty room. And these are going to give you a wide variety of abilities that will, like, they might just give you an income of wood or stone each round. They might let you convert resources. They might give you points at the end of the game. A wide variety of things that these do and navigating a path through those is really i think the, the core differential here first you have to make room for them in your caverns and then trying to decide which, which ones to, to focus on is really going to be the core, core to your strategy and, and a big part of why i was so in, so intimidated by this game when i first played it years ago Right. Yeah, that's another big philosophical change in this game versus Agricola. Those coming from Agricola will be very familiar with the minor and major improvements. And pretty much the furnishings and dwellings in Caverna are those those major improvements. Major improvements in Agricola were always available to all players. They were known from the start of the game. So there's exact, only like eight of them, though, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or I think there were ten of them. But yeah, there. The fact is that they were known, so they weren't within a single player's hand. Whereas the minor improvements were potentially in the player's hands. They're either dealt randomly at the beginning or drafted, which is another great way to play that game. In this. Uh, Caverna, they just sort of front load it and put it all out there. And as we saw with the expansion, there is some variability in which furnishings, uh, do get out there to be drafted. But uh, it's, it's, they're, they're front loading the complexity. And that mm-hmm. seems to be a direction that Uve has gone into rather than keeping it hidden and drafting in cards. 
he's just putting it all out there for everyone it's, it's to see. It's a big bottleneck uh, when you when you first start this game and just presented with these fifty options and trying to to just read them all and you, you sort of trying to learn the game and then you got like fifty different options to choose from. And I, I really struggled with that when I first played it and trying to like how am I supposed to choose? I sorry, there is a sort of beginners version that where you limit i think it's about half of the tiles are laid out so that can give, give a little more d- direction obviously it, it's it's only really good for the first playthrough because then any experienced players are going to find that pretty limiting if there's only half of the tiles in play but if, if you're playing with a bunch of new players there is that option but even then there's, there's still 25 tiles to try and to, to figure out what what's best for you yeah and the thing about that that front-loading philosophy that that uve has trended towards is that if you look at it just glance at it it is absolutely overwhelming mm-hmm. like it will mentally shut people down <laughs> and and it, i admit it, it did it did shut me down to uh, a brief regard but you will notice that even in games like Caverna, in games like Feast for Odin, which is, is a, a, a wider tangent away from Agricola, is that a lot of the action choices are slight variants of each other. So yes, yeah. the case in point is the dwellings. So dwellings are pretty critical. Uh, like Agricola, you basically need room for your family to live in. But unlike Agricola, you can have types of rooms. So you can have couples rooms. You can have a room that supports animals. You can, as well as dwarves, you can have ones that are worth points, ones that are not worth points. And essentially there's a big stack of these kind of what, what are they like 10 standard dwellings? And then there's about five other dwellings, which are those variations I was talking about. If you look at all those dwellings, you could say, Oh, look at those 15 options. They're so scary. Well, really they're <laughs> just all dwellings. And one costs one more wood, and one gives you one more point. Yeah, or, if you and break with, it down um, like that into categories, it's actually a lot less overwhelming. Yeah, so same with with the end game points. So there's one that will give you a whole bunch of points for having sheep. One that will give you a whole bunch of points for having cows, and so yeah, on. And basically, give you, by by picking a couple of those to focus on, you then you, that will give you direction. So I, I think, it, especially for a first couple of games, it's best to just choose something that you want to do and there will probably be some of these furnishings that will help you do that (laughs) yeah so don't look at the whole swath of options just look at the categories of options and i think that's going to ease a lot of players in and basically you know like i don't really worry even even only having played three or four full-scale games of this I don't worry about each and every option. I don't know what each and every option does. <laughs> I just sort of try and go with the flow and build up some resources to pay for these, you know, furnishings and improvements. And by the time I get to them, I get to them. And then I'll choose the option that's better suited towards my kind of development thus far. Yeah, the at the level that I've been playing, I've definitely just been improvising and, and grabbing what seems can be like not building my my farm around these furnishings just do focusing on something and then deciding down the road okay this kind of fits into what i've been trying to do but i i can see where obviously when you if you're playing with experienced players there would obviously be more optimal 
strategies, combining specific dwellings and in particular orders, and then in turn sort of countering those, like, oh, someone's clearly going for the stone strategy, collecting a bunch of stone. You can you could potentially hate draft that. I was re- reading an interesting uh, article, sorry, a review from Cole Worley, discussing how he thought this was actually a meaner game than Agricola because you can steal those from each other. Which where where in Agricola you, you've got your hand of, of occupations and no one's going to take them from you. Here, if there's a furnishing that that's key to your strategy, someone can take it from you. But I don't know that that's particularly common unless you're playing with a. With a group of players that really want to get mean about it it's, it's very rare that you're going to have a, a clash there i think <laughs> well that's raises a good point is how much variation is there in the setup of this game as in if you always play with the same four players and the same person becomes and everyone sits at the same seats and this you know daniel becomes first player again how do you stop Daniel from recreating that strategy once again? Absolutely, yeah, and then that's where I can playing with the same group. That there would definitely be sort of meta strategies built around this, because there is generally no variety. Not to say there's no replayability, but the the game is going to be the same at the start, and you kind of have to force yourself to try different strategies. The game is not going to change. The only way in which it does really is in reaction to other players. So you have all of these spaces that are accumulating resources. So this space is going to collect two wood each round. This space is going to collect two stone each round. And there's multiples. There's a lot. There's more of these than there are agricola. So you, you've got multiple spaces accumulating wood each round, more than people are able to take. And so very quickly you have these stockpiles forming up. And so that even if you don't necessarily want wood, it gets to the point where, well, there's, there's too much wood there to not to take it. So that, that kind of forces, not forces, but encourages your strategy in reaction to what other players aren't doing, <laughs> in, in a sense, if you know what I mean? Yeah, you want to carve out a niche for yourself. And I think you actually did that fairly successfully in the game that you, me, and Chris played. Chris and I were going for fairly similar strategies on one, one side of the table, ironically, uh, and you were on the other side of the table, very quietly going another direction. And I, <laughs> I think that worked out pretty well for you. Yeah, you definitely want to be watching what other people do and, and actively trying to avoid clashing with them. And there's only so many things you can do in this game. There's going the more players, there's going to be some overlap. But the game, the rules specifically call out. Well, if if everyone's focusing on these expeditions, then and, and one person isn't, they're going to win. But Or if no one is focusing and one person does, then they're going to win. So that the person who does the thing that no one else is doing is going to have a pretty significant advantage. So, so that, that dynamic is going to shift number of players. And that the, the bigger, biggest variety in this game is actually how the, the spaces change with the number of players. The boards are completely different with, with what resources accumulate. So it's almost a different puzzle at every player count. Right. And later versions of uh, Agricola did that as well, depending on the number of players. It, it highly varied the setup of the actions that are available. And, and to be quite honest, oh, pretty much all of Uwe Rosenberg's games do that, or at least the ones I've played, like even Le Havre, another one of my favorites, that you get large piles of resources piled up, 
uh, also has a different variety of buildings that uh, change up the way the game is played based on the number of people. So that much is a very cool aspect of the game that it changes so much between the number of players. And I'm really glad I played with a range of players on board game arena primarily. Mm-hmm. Now that, yes, now that it is implementation on there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really cool there. It was quite bewildering to play on board game arena. I certainly would not recommend playing there first, <laughs> learn it, <laughs> learn it from humans, or at least play a virtual game with a human who will uh, kind of guide you through it. Like Daniel had offered to do here. I think we've kind of been hovering around it, but can we talk about expeditions? Yes, let's do that. Okay. So expeditions, I, like I said earlier, this was the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around <laughs> because nothing like it exists in uh, Agricola. Basically, a worker is a worker unless it's a baby, which is just a worker that's not ready to use yet. A farmer is a farmer is a farmer, but in Caverna, not all dwarves are cut from the same cloth, it turns out. Some have bigger hats. (laughs) Precisely. So you go to this special spot, which I don't even remember what it's called. You need to bring some ore or something there, right? To forge your weapon? Yeah. Or yeah, weapon or or are you forging the hats? I don't know. So you you spend ore to to basically put a hat on your dwarf, and they now have a a level. So these, 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 these hats range from 1 through to 14. And once they have a hat, you can send them on expeditions. And there's there's various bases that allow expeditions of varying degrees, like what usually one through four, which basically is the number of of, of rewards you can collect on this expedition. So there's, there's this whole chart of rewards for each level, basically incre- increasing in 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 value of rewards. So if you go if you send a level one dwarf out, you can only get a wo- wood or a dog. But if you send out a level ten dwarf, well, now you can you get a free furnish a, a dwelling action, or you can put down a, a meadow for free. And fourteen is you can breed animals as a free action, and it, it gets it ramps up quite a lot with the, all these bonuses. Uh, that is one of the, the key ways of, of, of really maximizing your, your play here in giving you a lot more flexibility. Right. It's it's pretty much game-breaking almost, the way that the power that you can accumulate through armed dwarves. Basically, you gain the ability to perform multiple worker placement actions with one action. Now, of course, there's only a few spots on the uh, actions that allow you to take expeditions. Uh, and like you said, there are one, two, and three typically. Sometimes it's four. So you're, whoever has armed dwarves are going to compete very closely for those action spaces but there's an even one more clever twist that makes that a harder exercise than you might imagine and that's the dwarf playing order yes yeah so you you have to play your dwarves with no hats first before you can send out the the ones with hats on expeditions there is a a where you can break that so rubies are a resource in this game you can you can mine rubies and that you can basically play a ruby to break the order and, and those, rubies are an, another way in which you can basically break the game and that they're, they, they are basically wild they can collect any resource they can let you break the order of your dwarves you can use them to, to build rooms and and do a wide variety of things much like when you go on expeditions you have this wide variety of things to choose from like basically a, me- a menu of resources. Would you like a wood or a cow or to, to breed your animals? 
Yeah, I just want to re-emphasize how brilliant it is of a design concept to make it so that your strongest workers can only be played last. By which time a lot of those spaces are going to be gone. <laughs> Precisely, which builds the economy of wanting to collect those rubies because they allow you to break that placement order. So, And furthermore, it adds one more wrinkle to the mix is it disincentivizes you from making new babies because inherently those new babies will not be armed. Yeah, in, in most cases, in most games, I've ended the game with only two or three. I, I really never felt the, never really felt compelled to grow my family as much as I did in Agricola. You, you can do a lot with just two dwarves, especially with if, if you're setting them both ex, uh, on expeditions every round. Right. So just the that wrinkle, that design twist has made the game so much more of juicy decision-making challenge than the straight, clean, what I would argue is the much cleaner and easier to read uh, worker placement system of Agricola. It's muddier, it's grayer, it's a little bit wilder, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I, in that case, I think it really fits the theme uh, of Caverna, whatever that may, might be, fantasy cave farming. Stardew Dally with, with dwarves. <laughs> I guess. A little bit. Which, speaking of which, there is actually rules in the game. For every one of those 14 rewards, there is there is law in the game about why a level 2 hat lets you take stone and a, and a sheep or something. I, I didn't actually get around to reading that, but the, he, he has put justification and, and story in for each of those expeditions. <laughs> right. And, and yet another clever design uh, choice is that you can't build you can't train a, a level 14 dwarf right from the get-go you have to build them up yeah level, yeah, level them the, up. the max you can do is uh one through eight i believe yes. by providing one through eight or and converting that into a weapon slash hat that part of the lore is a little confusing but to level up higher than that you actually have to send them on expeditions so you know, you can count the difference between level eight and level 14. You have to send them on multiple expeditions to ever hope to gain that sort of godly level of flexibility in taking those actions. So it's another brilliant design move. It's, it's a great sense of progression. And it's just a, a nice, it's just a fun mechanic to put hats on your dwarf and then send them out on adventures. It's, uh, it gives you a lot more flexibility. So you don't necessarily have as, it's, it, it there's not as much challenge because you can just take whatever resource you want in many regards, but like it's just fun. That's all there is to it. It's really. a pay, it's a payoff <laughs> for the investment that you've taken, yes. yeah. right? And that's why it feels so good, and that's why you can't really get angry at the players who utilize that dynamic really well because you know that they put in the effort to make that happen so meanwhile uh, while everyone else is, is going on expeditions you can collect the stockpiles that those, those players aren't collecting <laughs> yeah that's true too yeah this game has so many uh levels so many layers to it that i i can't help but give it strong kudos i would even say that it's probably a better design game than agricola although <laughs> i said this while we were playing i'm gonna keep playing agricola Mm -hmm. I'm not going to write it off. My comparison was nerdy, nerdy as ever, as I compared there's different Star Trek series and it's just like comparing the original series versus the next generation. <laughs> yeah, they're different, but 
it's no point in comparing comparing them because they two tastes it taste great together. I know. I don't know. <laughs> they have different. They have different qualities to them that so are great. That my my great. comparison is like Magic: The Gathering. So Agricola feels very much like a draft. You're given here's seven cards. Improvise a path through these cards. Try find the optimal order to play them in make the most of the of, of their abilities whereas caverna feels very much like just building a deck from scratch here's 200 cards build a deck <laughs> which in general i i generally prefer that sort of more improvisational drafting sense rather than min maxing my way through a hundred options caverna then is just not as punishing not to say yeah. that it's easier, but it's not as punishing. In Agricola, yes, you're improvising, but if you miss the opportunity to, to like you you have you 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 figured out the optimal strategy, but if you miss the the one opportunity to build the, the occupation, then your family's going to starve. Whereas right. in Caverna, if you miss an opportunity, well, you, you got one less stone, or you just it's not not as optimal. But very rarely are you going to starve in in Caverna. There's there's multiple ways of doing any particular action. There's like the rubies are wild. The expeditions give you a wide variety of options. So you're generally, going to be able to do some version of what you want to do, just maybe not as optimal. And and like on one hand, that's less friction. A lot of people prefer. Agricola explicitly for that friction. I think Caverna still has other other little little moments of, of, of friction spread around in the, in slightly different ways, but it also just lets you find the fun a little easier. It yeah. doesn't get in your way as much. Yeah, Agricola is. Uh, I will still say it's a cleaner system, but it's harder to thread that needle because you have yes. to calculate yeah. it just so. You have to execute it just so. It's mathematical calculation that can be thrown off <laughs> at any moment. <laughs> That's right. It's going to be thrown off by other players. And in this game, unlike the randomness of the draw of which occupation or improvement you're going to get, the only complication is the players. And so the players better compete to block those various actions from you. And, you know, I haven't played Caverna a million times, so I don't know if it has legs to, to keep going forever and ever. But I will say this one thing of the game we played, we played with factions. Yeah. I, I, before we get to the, the expansions, uh, that was something I wanted to address in that, as I said before, there, there is no variety in this game. Like the start, the, the start, the start of the game is going to be the same every time. There's a very slight differences to the order in which the cards come out. It's, it's largely inconsequential, at least, at least at the level that we're playing at. W- w- one criticism I, I will say is that I o- often feel that it's forcing me into this equilibrium because these tiles that you take uh, are double-sided. So you take a, a farming tile, it's going to have one meadow and one, farmland you take a cavern it's going to have one room for a dwelling and it's going to have one mine so everything is is dual layer and so by the time you finish your farm you're going to have half and half basically and so it's, it's kind of forcing you to do a little bit of everything both both inherently through the scoring and you need to have at least one of, of a resource but also just through the way in which you collect these tiles it's going to you're going to inevitably have half and half and so it's 
by the end of the game, you, you have a little bit of everything. And so it's very hard to, to feel like you're, it's different from game to game, if you know what I mean. Like you, you always feel forced into this sort of funneled, funneled into this equilibrium state and you're constantly having to fight against it and force yourself to try something new to get the dwellings that help you break out of that cycle. The, exp- the high-level expeditions that let you place out more farms than pastures, for example, it, it is quite tough to, to, to get to that point where you're really able to do it. it. There is more opportunity in theory for min-maxing because there's no cap. Like in Agricola, you can have at most, you can get like at most five points for sheep. If you have X sheep, you get five points and that's the max. Whereas in, in Caverna, it's just one point per sheep. Regard, like you, you can get as many sheep as you possibly can and you'll get a point for them. So you can in theory min max, but it, it, it is tough to do so with the game sort of current, constantly forcing you into this equilibrium state, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's going to be upon the players to balance their strategy. I think it's possible to go extremely in one way or, or extremely in the other. And so it's possible to go, you know, all farming heavy or all cavern delving heavy. I didn't really go heavy in, into either one, but I certainly went heavier in one side or the other, depending you know, another way that this game is different from its predecessor is that it's fairly easy to fill up those spaces, even though there are more spaces to fill. You don't have to take the steps of, you know, collecting all the woods and then very carefully laying out the the matchstick pieces to man- <laughs> manually build out your, what are they called, pastures mm-hmm. very carefully. You just buy a tile and it always costs four for the big one, and it fills up two squares. And it's just as easy as that. It's um, kind of a no-brainer, and buying the cavern tiles is is much the same. There's just two types of caverns. So those actions are almost always available. So filling out your spaces is not hard. But then you I do st- get these layers. You can, is, is, you can tiles upon tiles, like the far, the 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 the. the the pastures, not the pastures, the basically the, the fenced areas that the animals go into go, go on top of the pastures or the mines go on top of the tunnels. Yeah, there are still, mines upon mines and there's like you're building up a lot more. There are still stages, but I'll just say that it's a little bit more streamlined in how mm-hmm. you execute those. There's yeah. fewer very specific type action spaces and the spaces to do those actions are more readily available. So that's another way the game is more gentle. To, to new players. There are a few little sort of fringe rules that are very strange that seem they're there for the like theme, but a little out of place and just make it harder to teach. Like I don't know if you knew that you, you can you can build a, a stable on a forest and keep a single pig in that stable. You can do that. I don't know why you'd ever want to, but you can do it. <laughs> That sort of tripped me up, actually, because I thought I could put any animal on it, and it turns out that I couldn't, and you pointed that out to me, and you know, I didn't do that annoying thing where someone says, well, you never told me that. (laughs) I just thought to myself, why the heck, narratively, would they create a rule like that? It thematically makes sense, but it's just also just layering on all these exceptions that just make it harder to teach the game. (laughs) Yep, that, once again, they streamlined some stuff, and then they made it more complex with having those 
variations. You never know when there's going to be a harvest, and then you can only put pigs in the forest. <laughs> and then you have dogs, which dogs can watch sheep without fenced pastures, which kind of makes sense, but but that then you can't eat the dogs. And, uh, unless. Unless. <laughs> so, uh, as you teased before, we played one of the expansions. I, I did have a question here. Let me just find that. Uh, from Resonim, the, the game publisher, that they, they published Retrograde, which I discussed with Dennis a couple, a couple of episodes ago. So, they asked, although I imagine it is, this may be a case of someone being logged in on the wrong account. I'm not sure. But the question was, have you played the expansions? And if so, are they integral to a good game like a feast for odin and the norwegians expansion so i will say up front i've i've not played the expansions for feast for odin i played that game a while back and found it similarly intimidating and haven't gone back since but now intend tend to having having learnt to appreciate caverna so as for the expansions with this there are now two there's the forgotten folk expansion and just very recently the Fiendish, no, the the fe- fearsome fiends. I want to say it's, it's FF. It's like a Friedman Freeze naming convention here. That just came out. I haven't tried that, but we did play the Forgotten Folk expansion. So that basically adds asymmetric factions. So rather than all dwarves, you can now play as trolls or silicoids or these weird hipster elves. A wide variety of, of, of factions. It's eight, and they all give you quite a few different rules they, they tweak the, the, the core mechanics for each person and add some different dwellings so they replace four dwellings per faction uh from the, those 50 so there's going to be a bit of variety based on which factions are in play so what, what, what did you think of of this expansion i really liked it i really liked the fa- factions i guess i didn't really think about the lack of variability because I was playing with different player numbers all the time. So it seemed pretty varied to me. (laughs) So I didn't really think about it until I realized about, you know, the game setup, like where are the cards to vary things up? And of course they're not there. So the factions answer that question. They provide what everyone craves, which is player power, variable player powers. And they play quite differently. (laughs) Right. I played the trolls and I could eat dogs, which was great. But I had, because my trolls were big, they had to eat more to satisfy themselves during a harvest. Also, they were dumb. So (laughs) they could only level up their hats or their weapons up to level 10, I believe. So they couldn't go past But you got more rewards when you did go on those expeditions, which became very powerful. Exactly. So, it's you got the your pluses and your minuses your it's basically like dnd right you you get your 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 buffs and your debuffs and it was just very very juicy and enticing to play with those variations yeah i was i was playing the silicoids so i i didn't have to eat food i could eat rocks and which meant i i could have a i had basically had a hobby farm and had like just 50 animals and never had to eat a single one i could just let the, the animals just roam free on my my no-kill hobby farm and just focus on getting rocks and so it's interesting i i do i really like them thematically they add they add a lot of flavor 
they give it some direction. For new players especially, they you, you have a rough idea of what you should be focusing on rather than just figure it out. They, those new dwellings, some of those dwellings will directly benefit you. Some of them will just give your abilities to other players. But if you, if you look at just those four dwellings, you'll probably find something that will help you there. They do railroad you a bit, obviously. So you're going to feel, if you play the Silicoids five times, generally you're going to be going for a very similar strategy each time. Right. But the asymmetry itself, unlike other games of Caverna, is going to force you to play differently, as in so long as you don't play Faction A and, and Faction B against each other repeatedly, you should have some built-in asymmetry Oh, yeah. There. So there's, 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 there's eight very different games for you to play in that box and each, each one is going to feel very different and let you break the game in some fun ways it said if you it, there was a bit of a trouble if like you you and our friend chris both had factions that let that leaned into expeditions and so you two were competing for expeditions and i very quickly realized there's no point in me doing that i'm just going to do my own thing and and and, and break rocks uh, and because I wasn't competing, I, I won that game pretty handily. So especially at, say, three players, if you get an overlap in two factions, you, you there might be some trouble there in balance. Right. But once again, if we were better players, we would know <laughs> maybe, that maybe. <laughs> and we would have been able to counter you. So, yeah, I think uh, what a, w- this is a good expansion in the sense that it gives you the opportunity to have that variation. So I welcome it and I really enjoyed it. And I felt much more like I lived in this fantasy world as opposed to just being dwarf farmers because I didn't really see myself as a dwarf. I just saw myself as a farmer when I was playing normally. (laughs) And it's it's a rare expansion that that is better for new players. Uh, I I played with a few few other friends with, with that expansion and they both felt quite relieved that they had some direction and rather than just having to be presented with those 50 tiles and and figure out what they wanted to do. For sure. It's good to be good at something. Yes. Yeah. Great. Well, I think uh, we covered some good ground there with our Caverna talk. Yeah. Uh, I had, what the story, we had one more comment here uh, from Alec McKenzie at uh, Meeple and the Moose. Uh, who says, I like Caverna, I love Agricola. If one of you professes to prefer Caverna over Agricola, I only have one question, how dare you? Uh, <laughs> sorry to say, Alex, but I, I just like fun. <laughs> wow, I like I like the, how much feedback we're getting lately. That makes me feel very good and engaged with our audience. Uh, I actually like Agricola, I like Caverna. I think I like Agricola more. There's a place for both. There's definitely a place for both. Uh, I, I, what, 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 one thing that I think is very much a little understated in these games is just the tactility of playing farm. Just moving your little wooden cows around, putting them in a fence and stacking your vegetables. It's just, it's just playing farm. Very, very toyetic game. For such a heavy sort of euro game it's it, it, it surprisingly toyetic and 
like even when you're playing badly, you can just be having fun moving your sheep around. And I think Caverna doesn't get in your way as much. Agricola, is, Agricola has those little fences. You can you can build your little matchstick fences. That's fun. <laughs> but oh, Caverna just, just doesn't get in your way and lets you find that fun a little better. I um, love I love that matchstick fencing mini, <laughs> mini game. I, yes, that is one of the, the one of the few pros to Agricola. I'll, I'll give it that <laughs> for sure. I guess it's not exactly worth <laughs> playing one game versus the other. Although I re- sorely miss placing those little matchsticks. How much fun! Yeah. So uh, if if you have any questions or or comments on this episode or the next, or have any other suggestions for what you'd like us to cover, you can email us at the omnigamersclub at gmail.com or join in on the the Twitter threads. We'd we'd love to get more people involved and especially in the, in sort of the game of the episode. And we're looking at ways of which we can sort of facilitate more discussion maybe we could look at setting up a discord server or something but we'd love love people to be be playing along and and get your thoughts as well absolutely keep sending the feedback it's it feels great and we honestly want to hear your thoughts too not just us (laughs) tell me how please tell me more about how wrong i am for referring to them There you go. I'll, I'll happily tell you how wrong you are. <laughs> that's the whole stick of this this show, I think. Excellent. So next episode, we're going to finally talk about the other elephant in the room, the, the other game that everyone's been playing. We are going back to Hyrule and talking about Tears of the Kingdom. That's right. The new hotness that's uh, based on that six-year-old game. Legend of Zelda, of course. It's a beast. I'll tell you that. <laughs> a, div- a divine beast? Yeah, not, not that I've seen so far. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've been sinking a lot of time into that. I absolutely have some thoughts, but I wanted to give... I wanted to allow ourselves some time to, to really sink in. There's, there is a lot of game there. Uh, and we, we have a, an exciting, exciting, exciting guest lined up for that. So stay tuned and get your questions ready. That's right. I'm sure there'll be some interesting opinions about Tears of the Kingdom. Absolutely. So uh, I am Daniel Winter. You can find me at Board Game Feast. I'm currently in the process of updating my website. I'm looking to, to revamp what I do there with some actual recipes. Uh, my, the, the new version allows me to, to properly format some recipes. So if you want to level up your game night and, and, and have some, some tasty treats, Stay tuned for that. Right, and I'm uh, Omnigamer Mark on Instagram. I've been sharing photos of Yura Yura Penguin and other uh, games that we've been playing or games from Japan. So keep an eye on that for more uh, fun games. Excellent. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Daniel. And until next time, have a balanced diet of gaming. <laughs>